We're going to hear a great passage today for uh, women and especially for moms. Men, we get to listen in as well, and we would be foolish to not think that there are uh, any applications for us. It's a rich passage, and a couple of places that, you know, it's a text, kind of you read it, and it's sweet, but there are some things in the text that I had never understood before. And there were a couple of brain-busting moments for me this week in looking at this text. I especially want to thank another pastor, Pastor Tim Keller, for his observations on this passage, and a couple of uh, world-renowned Hebrew scholars that I was able to read and get some insight into this passage that I think you'll see in a different way by the time we finish today. Let's do some spiritual aerobics. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. And we have asked the uh, perfect mother, Lynette Pratzner, to read for us today. So Lynette is going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 1, and it will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but I would love it if you could look along with us because we'll be picking through this in a few moments. Lynette. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3 through 20. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehah, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave double portions because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and went and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine nor, or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. You may be seated. 
Okay, so happy Mother's Day. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a joint resolution naming the second Sunday in May Mother's Day. In Mother's Day, listen to this, 122 million phone calls are made to moms. And approximately $14 billion is spent on Mother's Day, including a quarter of all of the flowers given all year long. That's a hint, Jordan. Okay, so happy Mother's Day. And listen, all of you, if you raise your hand if you had a mother. Okay, so good. You appreciate Mother's Day. Uh, here's what we need to look at today in this passage. Number one, we need to look at Hannah's suffering. Number two, we want to look at Hannah's response to her suffering. And then our thoughts really need to land on Hannah's theology. How did she get to the kind of response that she offered up? Her theology, her thoughts about God are what enabled her response. Her thinking about God enabled her to do something here that was both brave and surprisingly liberating. And I think you'll see it as we unpack this passage. So before we kick in, I'd like for us to pray again. And I want to remember a couple of folks today. Once every great while we do this at Gateway, but uh, this came across my desk this week. So I would like for us to pray for Heba is a North African woman who was punished by her family for converting to Christianity. She, she was run out of her home and uh, had to relocate. She's in hiding now. And I want us to also pray for Pastor Anju. Pastor Anju was attacked in his church while he was leading 70 people in worship. And uh, he's been in jail for 15 days and being held there for forcing conversions in the Hindu part of uh, India. So as we pray, let's pray for Heba and for Pastor Anju. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is a privilege to be here this morning in peace. And so we don't want to take that privilege lightly. Today, Father, we are thankful for our mothers. I pray especially today for those of us who had complicated relationships with our mothers. I pray, God, that if there were places in that relationship that were lacking, I pray that you will supply that lack as you are the true source of all of our satisfaction. I pray for those of us who in the last year or two have lost our mother. I pray, God, that today would be a day of remembering and grieving and rejoicing. And Father, I ask for that crazy miracle that you would quicken our hearts. And as only you can do, and that you would use this story, Hannah's story today, to speak to us. Really, speak. Your servants are listening. In preparation for that, Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sin. We have sinned this week, perhaps this morning, against you in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and in what we have left undone. Have mercy on us based on the life and death and ministry, the sacrifice on our behalf of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his strong name we pray. Amen. So first of all, Hannah's suffering. Hannah is suffering in at least two ways. Hannah's sister wife, 
Panina taunts her. Isn't that the right term, sister wife? In a very real sense, this was Hannah's most important social relationship. So Hannah is suffering socially, and let's recognize she lives with this woman. So taunting would have been constant. This really cannot have been pleasant for Elkanah either, her husband. You know, polygamous marriage in the Bible is one of those things. That just Let me just say this as an aside. That's one of those things that gets brought up every now and then when people want to complain about the Bible. It supports all of these weird things like polygamous marriages. And I would just say that anybody who feels that way doesn't really know how to read a text. Because if you read the story of polygamous marriages in the Bible, none of them are happy. In fact, the word here, rival, is the Hebrew word sarah. It literally means rival wife. This practice was so proverbially bad, they had a word for it. Hannah is stuck in a social situation that is perfectly designed to punish her. She's suffering. Hannah's living in violation of the most important cultural expectation for women of her day. Now look, there were reasons that women were expected to have children which had nothing to do with the oppression of men. First of all, having children in the ancient world improved the economic position of your family. Simply put, more kids meant more hands to work, more earning capacity. Secondly, children were also the ones who would provide for you in your old age. Remember, there were no assisted living facilities at this time, so more children meant more security when you got older. Plus, and and this has to be said, having more children obviously increased the, the population. This was the only way for your army to get larger than your enemy's army. So having children was the expectation for women of this day. And it was far more practical than it was misogynistic. There may have been misogyny in this, but in the ancient world, having kids was a practical necessity. And in the face of this cultural need and expectation, Hannah was childless. That much is plainly stated in the text. What's less obvious to us is how diligent she was in her relationship with God. Hebrew scholars seem to be united in their observation that for the Hebrew reader of this, That aspect would have been the most obvious aspect of the text. Hannah was a righteous woman. And in part, because of Hannah's righteousness, because of her understanding of the sovereignty and providence of God, she has come to believe that the Lord had closed her womb. Here's the thing. Whether or not she was directly blaming this on God, Hannah knew without question that God could do something about it. And up to this point, he had not. So Hannah suffers every time she goes to the well to gather water with the other young moms, every time she goes to market without her own child in tow. The fact that she might have had one or two of Panina's children with her only makes it worse. The villagers knew who those kids were. Every time she sits alone thinking about her future, every time she thinks about herself and her place in society, whenever she sees her mother, Whenever she sees childhood friends whose laps are full of children, Hannah suffers. Now, it's a fact, at least in my house it is, that women suffer with more grace than men do. When I get sick, Diane does all of my work, all of her work, and she takes care of me. When Diane gets sick, 
I do all of my work. She does most of her work and takes care of herself. I figure I do that for her, because if I take care of her, I'm only going to get sick, then she'll have to do everything. So I'm really... I'm thinking about her when I do that. I think part of the reason that many women suffer with more grace than many men is because you've had to suffer more. There have always been more cultural constraints placed on you than there have been on me, and this was true for Hannah as well. But Hannah, Hannah is able to manage her suffering with uncommon grace, more grace than the typical extra grace that women seem to store up, at least in this incident, and I'll explain how. And eventually, because of the grace with which she responds to her suffering, she is liberated from the cultural constraints, and her suffering ends. So how does this happen? And it's not the way you may think at first. Okay, so let's look at how she responds. How did Hannah respond to all this suffering? I'll read again verses 9 through 11 of the text, and I want you to especially listen for the what's going on there part of it. Once when they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, Hebrew scholars like to explain that Hebrew narrative is richer than English narrative in many cases. The Hebrew author almost always intends for their characters to speak for something larger than themselves. This, of course, is also true in many English novels. High school teachers are forever torturing their students in an effort to get them to identify what the character of the novel represents. But this is rarely true in a brief English passage. In brief descriptions of events like this, in English, those are usually just the facts and the flow. But for the Hebrew author, characters representing a larger narrative, that's industry standard in all settings. And it is here as well. So here's what I mean. In this story, Panina and Elkanah represent two different cultural narratives. And for the Hebrew reader, this would have been obvious. This may not be immediately obvious to us, but it makes a huge difference in how we see it. So let me explain. On the one hand, Panina represents the larger cultural expectation for women. Having children is what women were supposed to do. And to reinforce this cultural expectation, Barrenness was either pitied or it was ridiculed. Motherhood was an ancient Near Eastern woman's obligation. This was her identity. And as a result of this incredibly strong cultural current, a young ancient Near Eastern girl learned that this is what would make her happy. Mothering was what would give her a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment as a woman. Does anybody here believe that this kind of thinking may not be just an ancient world problem? On the other hand, O'Connor represents an alternative for Hannah, a way out. He represents another cultural narrative. Now, Elkanah is a noble character in this story. In fact, for the first few sentences, we actually think the story is about him. 
He goes up year after year to sacrifice an honorable activity for a righteous man. In the sacrificial meal setting, he serves a portion of the meal to Penina and her children. He doesn't just play the man hovering over to one side of the table with the other men expecting the women folk to take care of their brood. Elkanah oversees and cares for his family. And finally, he gives a double portion of the sacrificial meal to his childless wife, Hannah. And Hebrew scholars point out that this is a clear textual indication that Hannah is his true love. That's what the double portion means. Finally, like any good hero, ancient or modern, Elkanah is aware of his true love suffering and he throws himself into the mix, offering his love as the ultimate fulfillment and the end of that suffering. He offers Hannah a viable, a real alternative. Elkanah wants to rescue Hannah from her cultural and social suffering. You don't have to worry, Hannah, he says. I'll take care of you in your future. You are my true love. I'll love you more than ten sons. Quite a thing for an ancient Near Eastern man to say. Obviously, Elkanah is not your typical male brute. I mean, this has the makings of a great love story. But if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Elkanah even though he's a righteous man, even though he's a noble figure, even though this has the potential to be a great love story, Elkanah still represents a departure for Hannah from her God-ordained purpose and design. Do you see it? Elkanah offers her a countercultural way of finding her satisfaction, an offer that's right in front of her and real. She can take it now. But it's still not the offer that meets Hannah's design and her deepest need. In effect, Elkanah is saying, Hannah, you don't have to find your satisfaction and meaning in being a mother. Find it in me. Let me be the man of your dreams and let me solve all of your problems. But you and I were designed to find our meaning, our purpose, and our pleasure in God and God alone. Nothing else can truly satisfy. Now, women... Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is starting to sound familiar. With some minor adjustments, the author could have set this story in the 21st century American suburbs. Women, you're told, find your satisfaction and your meaning in your child. If they are well-mannered, popular with the in-crowd, very accomplished academically and in several other resume-building pursuits, and if they're attractive, especially if they're attractive, then you'll be completely happy. If they have part of those things on that checklist, then you'll be partly happy, but you can find some other ways to supplement your happiness. Like, for instance, maybe with one of your other children. Maybe they'll hit all the checklist. Or, women, find a great love. Find someone who will meet your needs, body and soul. Then you'll be satisfied and happy. He should be very nice looking with a great build that doesn't dissolve into a beer belly at 43. He should be wild about you and constantly compliment you on how good you look. And P.S., by the way, you should look good so he can compliment you. He should be extremely successful, well-spoken, hilarious, and very confident in all settings to the degree that you find this man that meets all of that checklist, then to that degree you'll be fully satisfied. If he comes up somewhat short of this picture, then your happiness will come up somewhat short. However, you can supplement your dissatisfaction with other pursuits. Or, in the 21st century, there is yet another alternative for you. 
Women, you can finally find your satisfaction and meaning in the ways that have been traditionally reserved for men. You too can be driven and as worried as your father was. You can find your satisfaction in your career. You can work and plan and worry as if your life depended on it because you'll believe that it does. And you can now open yourself up to the awesome side benefits of sleepless nights, heart disease, and anxiety disorders that in generations past were reserved mostly for men. Congratulations. <laughs> but we know these various alternatives don't work. We know these various alternatives don't work. We, and when I say we, I don't just mean Christ followers. We know these alternatives don't work. Not a week goes by without the cover of some pop culture magazine being filled with the tearful testimony of the latest pop culture star who has realized that all that they have pursued and mostly attained, by the way, has not given them what they really were seeking. We all know these alternatives don't satisfy. And we read these stories with some satisfaction, partly because it reminds us that we're not the only ones who are unhappy. And then we go out and we pursue those very same cultural norms as if our life depended on it because we believe it does. But we know these alternatives don't work. So Hannah's suffering. And she's being told... Try harder to have a child because that's where you'll find your satisfaction and your meaning. And if it doesn't happen for you, then you're just going to live a tormented life. Or just rely on our great love to fill you up. You can find all your happiness and satisfaction, all that you want in my love, if you just will. And Hannah ends up rejecting both. So what does she do? How does she respond? How does she reject both? I want you to see this. Hannah's response to her suffering is a prayer. Hannah prays a transformative, faith-soaked, God-dependent prayer. That's how she responds. Let's unpack that. Now, when she prays, it sounds to our ears a little like she's bargaining with God. But she's not. And the context makes that clear. First of all, did you notice verse 9? When I read it a second ago, when Lynette read it, that weird phrase, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. For the English reader, we read that and think, okay, well, why does that get a whole sentence? I mean, probably several people at this table stood up. But Hebrew scholars will tell us that this is an important Hebrew idiom. It means that she resolved within herself. She firmly decided something new. It's as if we use the English phrase, and we have this phrase, don't we? She put her foot down. So when Jordan was little, he could minute by minute torment his mom, and, and you knew when mom eventually had had enough, and we might say, boy, Diane put her foot down. She did a lot more than just put her foot down, but that's the phrase we use because that's an English idiom. Hannah stood up. Hannah resolved, enough! Hannah surrendered. We'll come back to the prayer itself in a moment, but first we need to look at the heart behind the prayer. On first reading, it sounds pretty mercenary, right? God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this. But we know that Hannah is not bargaining with God because of the way the response plays out. 
So this is a brain-busting observation, but hold this. Remember this. I want to read verses 18 through 20, and I want you to follow the flow of the text. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. If Hannah had been bargaining with God, then the order of her response would have been different. If Hannah had been bargaining with God, then the order of the response would have been prayer, provision, and then peace. I don't know about you, but when I'm bargaining with God and I'm praying, I pray, God, give me something, and then I wait on pins and needles until I see if God answers my prayer. But in this case, the response was prayer, peace, and then provision. Hannah prays, and her face is no longer downcast because Hannah has surrendered. Hannah has resolved. Hannah stood up. Hannah stood up to the cultural expectation. Hannah stood up to Elkanah's offer. And what Hannah gets is the peace of God which passes all understanding that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians. Look, Hannah has been praying for years that God would give her a child. But something different has happened here. Hannah has resolved something new. There's been a shift. Her faith has finally taken hold of her heart, and she's seen her real dilemma in a new way, with new eyes. What Hannah prays here essentially is this. God, all of my life I've wanted a child for me. I've wanted someone to love. I've wanted the joy it would bring, the, the status it would afford. I wanted the security. I wanted this for me. But now, if it's your will, I want a child for you. I still long for the privilege of giving birth, but I surrender. I want it for you, Lord. That phrase, no razor will touch his head, some of you know, that means that Samuel will be a Nazarite. And a Nazarite would spend his life as a volunteer Levite, as someone attending to the temple. That would be his career. That would be his life. Hannah is giving this child to the service of the Lord should he come. Hannah now wants a child in service to God. And the result of this prayer experience is peace. The result of the prayer experience is peace. Again, the peace comes in response to the newfound faith and resolve and in response to the newfound surrender. I don't know about you, but that's not what happens for me when I pray a prayer of bargaining with God. But finally, Hannah has let go. She doesn't want anyone else's story for her life. She wants God's. She moves above and beyond cultural constraints. She moves past the need for a man. She moves to real satisfaction from the one source that will never disappoint. So how does Hannah get to this place? How does this happen in this young woman's life? And to understand this, we've got to understand Hannah's theology. We've got to see what Hannah sees about her God. 
And to do that, we're going to look at Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. Now, Lynette didn't read this for us because we're going to read it responsively this morning. And here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to read the light print, and women, I'm going to ask if you would read the dark print responsively with me. We'll read it in three sections because we're going to make three points. There are three aspects of this that are unmistakable, that are a rich part, a whole layer of the texture of Hannah's understanding of God, of Hannah's theology. And we need to see them because this theology informs the faith that allows Hannah to surrender and go free. So I'll read the light print. Women, you read the dark print, and we'll be reading. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. So let's read the first four verses. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. So we're dividing this in three parts. That was the first part. I want you to notice here, ladies, that Hannah not only lays out a profound piece of theology, but she also plays mom. She scolds us. There is no one, there is no one holy like the Lord. And every new place that we move spiritually, every advance, every time we step forward in the spiritual life, it always begins with a fresh recognition, "Ah, you're God, I'm not. You're God. There's no one like you. Every time we make a spiritual advance, it begins there, and it does for Hannah as well. And then she plays mom, right? There's no rock like you, and don't you keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. First, she begins by recognizing the sovereignty, the power, and the providence of God. Okay, second part. We'll go verses 5 through 8, and it begins with you, ladies. Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dusts, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Well, let's call this the great reversal. And all epic theology, all understanding of God that we can build a life on, it understands that God does not see the way we see. Really, this summarizes the teaching of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus, over and over and over again, hey, I want you to come to me, not like some scholar, but like a little kid. The way up is down. The way to live is to die. The way to lead is to serve. You want to be first, be last. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What? Because God flips everything upside down. The great reversal, and Hannah sees it. I'm blessed because I'm in this, because I've suffered. I'm blessed. You don't get to see the great reversal unless you get God in your life. And you don't really see life as it really is unless you experience the great reversal. The great reversal says this. 
If I hadn't experienced the sorrow I'm experiencing, the social rejection I've experienced, then I wouldn't have gotten the freedom that I have now. And you can never say that unless you experience the great reversal. Finally, let's read the ending. And for the ending, I'm going to ask, if you would, let's stand out of reverence. And men, I'm going to ask you to join us on this one. This is epic. What I want you to notice in this is just how cool it is and how rich it is. But we're introduced to a character at the very end of Hannah's prayer that hasn't appeared yet. So follow this. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. All right, stop. It is not by strength that one prevails. So let's find lots of synonyms for that. It's not by effort. It's not by my design. It's not by my talent. It's not by my hard work. It's not by my family upbringing. It doesn't matter that much in America anymore, but it's not. It's not by strength. It's not human effort. I interrupted. Start over. It's not by strength. One, two, three. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to the king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You can be seated. Okay. It's not by strength. In other words, God is the source of ultimate satisfaction and salvation and victory and security and freedom and that salvation and satisfaction and victory and security and freedom pause for dramatic effect they are manifested in God's hero so who is Hannah talking about who is this character that she's introduced at the end that word the anointed one, that's the word Messiah. David? Yes. She's talking about David, King David, who was not yet born. But she's also talking about someone beyond David. Hannah sees someone way beyond David, beyond in time, beyond in epicness, beyond in greatness. Those of you who know the Bible story well, you'll know that Hannah's prayer sounds a lot like the prayer of another young girl who got surprisingly pregnant. That girl said in her prayer, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers in their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble, the great reversal. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate climax of the pattern of salvation that Hannah has experienced. Come on, women. Culture tells you that you must be thin and perfectly shaped and successful while you're also having perfectly accomplished children who are fathered by a gorgeous, successful man of your dreams without a beer belly. To the degree that you have all of that, then you'll be happy. To have it perfectly is to be completely happy. So if you're not completely happy, it must be that there are parts of the checklist missing. But what if the whole checklist is wrong? In fact, we know it is. And still, we lean into it. But there's an alternative. And men, we would be foolish not to hear it for us as well. 
there is an alternative. And the alternative is to stand up and surrender. Unsurrendering. A favorite author for many of us is uh, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis has one of my favorite quotes about surrendering. I want you to hear this. We're going to end with this. This is from Screwtape Letters. And uh, some of you have read Screwtape Letters. If you haven't, remember that name and read it. It's a great little analogy, metaphor. The whole book is a series of letters written by a head demon named Screwtape. And he's writing the letters to an associate demon named Wormwood. And Wormwood has just been given the assignment of looking over one of his charges who's getting to be interested in religion. So Screwtape is giving Wormwood kind of backward, uh, sarcastic advice about how to, to keep his new charge from becoming too religious. On the issue of surrender, but Screwtape says this to Wormwood. When he, that is God, he talks about God as his enemy, when he talks of their losing their selves, he means only abandoning the clamor of the self-will. Once they've done that, he really gives them back all of their personality. And he boasts, I'm afraid quite sincerely, that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. Anybody want to be more yourself than ever? Let's pray. So Father, we're still this morning, right now. For some of us, it's the first time this week. I don't know how you've spoken, but wherever and however, I, I pray in this moment you would seal it. And whatever is lacking, we ask in Jesus' name that you would supply it. It may be courage. It may be understanding. It may be trust, faith. Whatever is lacking this morning, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would empower us to stand up and to surrender. We want to declare this morning that our satisfaction can only be found in you. Our hearts cannot rest until they rest in you. We know, we know all of the other alternatives are a lie, but Lord, they just get spoken so often with so much volume. It becomes difficult to resist. So this morning, we stand up, we resist, we lean into you, we surrender. And we say yes to whatever it is you're doing in our lives, knowing that's the way for us to be more ourselves than ever. Jesus, we recognize you this morning as our hero. The source of our salvation, the release of God's full and complete satisfaction of your life to us. We recognize that you are our reward. You're enough. We declare it, we believe it, and every part of us, Lord, that has held back from that, we release it this morning. We surrender. Thank you. Okay, choir, let's stand up and let's sing a closing song.
Christ is my reward all of my devotion Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy Through every trial my soul will sing no turning back I've been set free Christ is enough for me Christ is enough for me Everything I need is in you Everything I need Christ my all in all joy of my salvation and this hope will never fail heaven is our own through every storm my soul will sing Jesus is here to God be the glory Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in me. Everything I need. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. sing this bridge together before we go. This bridge is an old chorus. Sing this with me. I have decided. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning cross before me, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back.
Take that and may you go in peace this morning.